Good evening, everyone, and welcome. My name is Kathleen McLean. I'm a programmer here at the Art Gallery of Ontario in the Department of Public Programming and Learning, where we foster creativity, learning, and dialogue through experiences with art and ideas. We welcome you here acknowledging that we're gathered on Mississauga territory, on land that has been home to the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat through time. It's great to see so many of you here for tonight's talk. Look Forward, Kenneth Brummel on the Modern Collection. And we titled it Look Forward because Look Forward is what we're calling the exciting reinstallation of the AGO Collection Galleries. Once completed, the reinstallation will bring 70,000 square feet of new installations across more than 50 galleries, including public spaces that were previously without art. And with the increased floor space committed to the collection, we'll present more art from each of our collection areas, Canadian, European, modern, and contemporary, photography, and prints and drawings. Now, Kenneth Brummel was the curator who had to reinstall his collection first. Therefore, he is the first curator speaking in this series. We hope to hear from all of the curators about Look Forward as the project rolls out. So, I'm really pleased to introduce Kenneth Brummel, who joined the AGO as the Assistant Curator of Modern Art in 2014. A specialist in late 19th and 20th century American and European art, he has worked in curatorial capacities at the Cincinnati Art Museum, the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art in Kansas City, and the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. He completed his graduate work at Harvard University and the University of Chicago, where he was a PhD student in art history. So, following tonight's talk, we're going to have the opportunity to ask Kenneth about five questions, four or five questions, and then we welcome you all to visit or revisit the reinstalled modern galleries, which are on the main floor of the AGO. We're open until nine o'clock tonight, so you should have time to, to do it all. But for now, please join me in welcoming Kenneth Brummel. Good evening. It's a pleasure to see everyone here, and it's a pleasure to present the Art Gallery of Ontario's Modern Art Collection in a new context in the Eaton and Galbert and Elliott Galleries downstairs. I hope you've had the chance to see the galleries, and if not, I hope you visit the galleries after this lecture. It's difficult um, when one assumes a position in a museum, one inherits a collection, and one has to define oneself and one has to define what one wants to accomplish with the collection. And as the curator of 20th century art, the question I always ask myself is simply, what defines the century? Why is the century different? Why is there a position called the assistant curator of modern art and why have I assumed it? And when I was cobbling together the collection to create a narrative that I would be able to install in space, I was thinking of the 20th century, and when we reflect on the 20th century, we think of a century that was highly unstable. We think of a century that was constantly in flux. And I think we think of a century that really rejected everything that preceded it, and rejected it in ways that seemed sometimes a bit extreme. And when thinking about this lecture and this installation, and I think of the modern condition, I think of there were two philosophers who in the February of 1848, they described modernity as 
everything solid melting into air. And what they meant by that was everything that had preceded it, all the prejudices, all of the institutions, all of the practices, everything that was familiar suddenly just became irrelevant. And even anything that new was proposed suddenly became antiquated and everything was constantly changing. And what those two philosophers exhorted their readers to do was always assess the world with what they called sober senses. But they also asked their readers to assess each other with sober senses and find a way to live together. And for me, that embodies how the modern artist confronted a century that was in many ways incomprehensible. So let's begin. When I describe institutions that suddenly became antiquated, that artists felt the need to simply sweep into the wastebasket of history, I think of the French Salon. And I think of landscape painting at the French Salon. And you'll notice I begin the reinstallation with a suite of galleries dedicated to landscape. This landscape you see here by Charles Bousson, it was exhibited in the Salon of 1877, and it really embodied what French critics called la France profonde, meaning here you have these three striations that represent the foreground, middle ground, background, and in the middle ground you have this happily situated village right in the center of the composition. You see these rustic homes, but you also importantly see the church, and in the foreground you see this peasant um, herding cows, and it's all quite picturesque. And of course, because this is exhibited at the Salon and the painter wants to please the critics, France is fertile. The hills are verdant. You have trees and vines climbing over these hills. And in the foreground, you have lettuce grow growing along the banks of the river. This was the type of painting that would earn praise in the Salon. It's comprehensible. It has certain nationalistic undertones. But you look at the composition, and it's all very rigid and classical. In 1890, there was a group of artists who splintered away from the Salon and decided to exhibit their paintings in a separate context. And that exhibition was named the Société Nationale. Now, we look at this painting by René Biot, and you notice that the architecture that was in the center of the previous canvas, it's been relegated to the margins. It's in the background. It's also enveloped in mist. But what's in the center of this composition? You have this receding canal. So where you would expect to have the main center of action, instead, you just simply have a void. And then the activity that's occurring in the foreground, you notice it's cropped off by the edges. You can see that the whole, all the codes of picturesque painting and all of the codes of even panoramic painting have just been completely rejected by this artist. But we think about things solid melting into air. And I chose that quote because when looking at this painting, this is an artist who heard Whistler's 10 o'clock lecture um, that was delivered in 1885 and then translated into French by the poet Stéphane Mallarmé in 1888. And he adapted the poetry of mist enveloping forms into this canvas. And so here we have a landscape painting that is just worlds away from what we would experience just um, 13 years earlier in the Salon. And for me, when I think of the rejection of institutions and the development of modern painting and the rejection of all of the codes, all of the conventions that had preceded, I think of this picture and the development of new exhibition spaces and development of new modes of painting. And I think to understand why the 20th century looks the way it does, one has to understand the century beforehand that these artists rejected. My colleague Catherine Logden had an important exhibition here over a decade ago on Whistler-Turner Monet. 
And she always argues that to understand Monet, one has to understand Whistler, but also Stéphane Mallarmé. And you can see that the mist that created the poetry in the landscape that we viewed from the 1890 exhibition, the Société Nationale, Monet takes Whistler's mist, but he takes it to the point at which the landscape completely evaporates. This is a view of the Charing Cross Bridge in London, which is the horizontal line with the vertical pylons you see in the foreground. Just behind it is um, just behind it is the Waterloo Bridge, and then you have the Towers of Parliament behind. But what you see is that Monet is not actually depicting a landscape or architecture for us. He's concerned with what he calls the envelope, which is the atmosphere between him as a painter and the objects that he's attempting to paint. And as he's attempting to paint this envelope, you notice that he's capturing the fugitive conditions of the sun setting behind the Houses of Parliament. And the envelope, which he described as this unifying mist that just unified all objects before one's eyes, he uses that almost as a pretext to create the unified canvas. And if you see how this picture is painted, you'll notice that he would paint and scrape and paint again and scrape again and paint again. And he did this in order to create the perfect balance of colors. If you look in the upper center, you'll notice those lovely yellows and greens and how they're perfectly balanced with the yellows and greens below. Look at the vertical lines of the Houses of Parliament and how they're balanced with the pylons of the Charing Cross Bridge in the foreground. Also, you'll notice, and these are really interesting paintings. He was sitting on his balcony at the Hotel Savoy, room 504, and he would look at the various architectural features in the Thames, and he would paint and paint again. But with this series of the Charing Cross Bridge, he only completed 12 on the balcony. There were 37 we know of, so 25 he took back to Giverny and worked and reworked and worked again and worked again and worked again. And in this case, you can see, and when you look at the painting downstairs, you'll see that he just, he couldn't finish this thing. And in the upper, what I find so remarkable about this, though, is that he was just so concerned with unifying the color scheme and the color instrumentation in this canvas. In the upper center, you'll notice that he has, you, you will see these Carmen strokes that sit right on the surface. They're almost the final touches in this painting. And then when one looks below, and if one, the thicker pylon below it, you'll notice that he begins to match the Carmen with those strokes of violet and Carmen there. And it's, you can see him performing these balancing acts. And even if you look at his signature, it's blue, and it's almost as if the blue, the signature is to balance the horizontal um, expanse of the bridge. And so the envelope, this mist that evaporates the material of landscape becomes the unified texture of Monet's painting. Now Monet, if we want to understand the crisis that's happening in landscape painting around the turn of the century, it's almost as if you cannot paint a thing that could be understood, and this object that you're attempting to paint and understand and experience can only be experienced over time, but there's no actual resolution, and so here you have the development of the series, and I just juxtapose other extent examples of the Charing Cross Bridge, so one can see that the landscape, as it was represented in 1877, you can see it's now disintegrating and exfoliating across time, across duration, but also into the space that envelops it. And I'd open the galleries with Monet because this doubt, this doubt about one's ability to understand and capture definitively an object, I think for me, really defines the opening lines of the 20th century. But at the same time, 
when you look at this picture, it's so highly structured and it is so highly abstract, meaning it's bisected by a horizontal line that divides the canvas into two planes. And you have the verticals of the pylons of the bridge and the Houses of Parliament almost acknowledging the shape, the rectangular shape of the canvas. And, um, but in many ways, Monet, even though he would anticipate what would follow, he would also be rejected. And you'll notice in the room in which I've installed these works, I have two Fauvist paintings next to the Monet. And I do this on purpose because I feel Fauvist painting, we, have, we happen to have a strong collection of Fauvist painting at the Art Gallery of Ontario, and I feel obliged to exhibit it. But I also wanted everyone to understand what were the Fauves rejecting when they decided to make their debut at the Salon d'Aton in 1905. And here we have the cover of the exhibition catalog. And I juxtapose it with the article that was published by Louis Vaucel in Gilba, where he described them as les Fauves, the wild animals, the beasts. And the central room in this exhibition they called le cage aux Fauves. So it was the cage with the animals because you had you know, Renoir and Rodin in galleries surrounding the central room where you had these paintings that everyone just found totally incomprehensible. Now, why would someone find this incomprehensible? Let's look at the Marquet painting, which is in the upper corner. You'll notice when we looked at the Monet, how even though he scraped and painted and repainted his painting again, there was a uniform texture across the entire surface, a thickly impasted texture that scraped and overpainted. But it's almost, you can imagine it being just a nacreous jewel, but it's continuous, it's texture. When we look at the uh, Marquet painting, Look in the foreground, you have these purple strokes that are disconnected, they appear to be so much confetti. You have these large expanses of unpainted ground. You also, when you look in the middle ground and you see these workers who are walking across um, Pont Neuf, they're just little flecks of canvas, they're just strokes of paint, they're just tongue lickings, as some would call it. And then he also has these thin patches that he paints the canvas. So what they called this was a mixed technique. There's no continuity, there's no attempt to connect brushstrokes, there's no attempt to create any unity in this canvas. And for someone in 1905, it's outrageous. Um, then we look at the Dufy um, that is next to this, and you can see that the Dufy and both the Marquet, they use the same geometric structure that we see in Monet in 1902. But look at what Dufy does with color. Dufy really respected Monet's accomplishment, but Dufy always felt, you know, Monet, you're just so literal. And even though you use these beautiful greens and these yellows and these um, purples in the sky, they still refer to an actual sunset. These are natural colors. And we look at what Dufy does. He basically makes color arbitrary. He pushes color to the limit. So roofs are purple now suddenly. And if you look at the mass of the ship there, or of these, of these boats, they're orange, they're green, they're red. They don't actually really refer to anything that one would see when um, viewing the port of Le Favre. But so Dufy, you know, it was a part of a different current of Fauve's painting in which he was more decorative insofar as you can see that he has these sensuous curves that extend from the upper margin to the bottom margin, but he pushed color to its limit with the exception, of course, of the French flag, which still remained red, white, and blue. Um, so you can, when you compare the Dufy to this, you can begin to see how as radical as Monet's experiments was in London, his color still remained local. It still referred to things that one saw in the world. So why did I choose this painting by Biot? And when one creates a lecture, one always has these unexpected surprises. And when thinking about the Marquet painting and when I was trying to understand, you know, how could I explain to an audience how Monet and Fauvism why these landscapes were so 
radical and why they were so unconventional at the time at which they were displayed, I happen upon this and we compare it to our Marquet and one can almost see that Marquet, when thinking of presenting a landscape that would challenge all conventions, was thinking back toward this is the Marquet, the Biot, was looking at the Biot and he basically utilizes the same composition as the Biot. You notice in the Marquet, um, this is the Marquet. Um, you notice in the Marquet, the, the Cata Augustine is the recessional rush, the void that is in the center of the Biot. And then you'll notice that the Marquet also has workers in the foreground, but then more importantly, in the background, you notice where again, when you think of architecture and you always think of lands, lands, but you always think of, I'm sorry, when you think of landscape painting and you think of architecture always being foregrounded and centered so you can identify it. Here, Marquet takes the big institutions of France. So in the far background, you have the Louvre, the main museum where all of your major historical paintings are exhibited, where every artist aspires to have his or her paintings displayed. But then you also have the um, Institut de France and the Hotel de la Monnaie um, also relegated to the edge of the picture. So if you think of the major French institutions in this Parisian cityscape that are pushed to the margins and instead in the foreground, what we have are workers in the proletariat foregrounded, you can begin to see how Marquet just follows this tradition of taking all of those old stodgy conventions and relegating them to the margins so as to create something new and perhaps maybe more ethical as he wanted to highlight the grittiness of Paris as opposed to provide viewers a painting with the fiction of a picturesque, idyllic landscape that may or may not exist. So the centerpiece of the French landscapes room is this lovely painting by Bonnard and this painting we acquired from Ayala Zacks in, in the 70s. And you can see that Bonnard is very much inspired by someone such as Monet, which is why I include the Monet with the Bonnard. And you can see that Bonnard certainly was inspired by the variations of the Impressionist touch, but also by the palette. And yet, painting later, and this is a major piece, it's a large piece, it's mural size, and I placed a bench in front of it so visitors could actually enter the room, sit down, and enjoy it. You'll notice that Bonnard, similar to Dufy, uses arbitrary color. If you look at the tree in the upper corner, it's blue. Um, if one looks at the shadow in the foreground, do you see this triangle that juts into the picture from the lower margin? It's blue. Children are orange. And so you can see, you know, he rejects the local color of Monet, but he also divides the canvas into a whole set of interlocking shapes. And it's quite a decorative canvas, but then within those interlocking shapes, he has a variegated technique. What I find so stunning about this Bonnard is when one sits in front of it and one tries to focus. Let's say, for example, one tries to focus on the child in the foreground standing next to the basket of fruits, because there is no resolution in that form, you struggle to try to put it into focus. And when one's looking in the peripheral vision, those forms come into focus. And so your eye moves, but then you try to focus on that object, but because he doesn't paint anything crisply, nothing is in resolution, you can't quite focus on anything. So your eye just constantly is forced to roam. And if you think of how Monet had that intuitive approach to the Charing Cross Bridge where, you know, again, he couldn't resolve it into a distinct form and he just painted it again and again and again and again in an endless series across a whole series of canvases. Here we have Bonnard and his experience of landscape is one in which 
It's almost as if the eye just opened, sun and light enters the eyes, and here you are orienting your body and your eyes and your mind in front of a landscape, but forms are just not yet congealing, and it's almost that moment where your eyes first rest on an object, and this is what he's depicting. So it's almost as if he's trying to create a sensory experience that is the logical conclusion of what we see in Monet. And it's, I open with this because now we see that landscape isn't a venue, landscape painting isn't the arena for literal representation, but it's an attempt to depict a sensory experience, a sensation, and a relationship with the visible world. What I love about this painting is its erroneous title. You'll notice that it's entitled, it's a landscape in the Midi region of France with two children. But if one looks next to the palm, one will actually see that there is a third child there. And it's you know, almost as if Bonnard is playing with our vision insofar as textually we're told that there are two children, but there are indeed three. And if you also just observe around where that third child in the background near the palm is, just look at the variation of his technique. He has those pointless red dots, but then one looks in the um, canopy of the yellow and green trees, and one can see that he paints with these squiggles that are, um, they almost resemble the constructive strokes of Cezanne. So the second portion of the first room, in which I'm trying to unpack how artists of the 20th century reject the codes and conventions of the 19th century, includes many representations of women, and they are divided into different sections. And when I think of our Hammerswey painting and our Rouvoui arts, which I will show you shortly, I think of genre painting, which was a type of painting that became really popular in France in the 1860s. And as you can see, genre painting would depict the burgeoning bourgeois class in their interior with all of their possessions. And here we have a, a woman in a blue dress. She's married. And here she is before her Japanese screen and her table with its Chinese, or um, let's just say it's Chinese-ifying tablecloth. And then there's a portrait of her in the background to which she stares, and she's elegantly appointed in a lovely blue velvet dress and she has her robe and she just removed a glove. But everything about her is visible to you. You know what her taste is, you know her possessions, the signs of her class, but also what she's thinking, meaning there is no psychological interiority to her. Instead, you have a letter on the ground that has been opened and there is a certain sexual suggestiveness to the open envelope. There you have her shoe protruding um, from her dress, again, with a certain kind of sexual suggestion. She's a married woman, but she has all these calling cards on her table. And here she is gazing at this portrait of her youth. And it's, it's a painting of infidelity, but the signs of infidelity are dispersed across this lavishly painted canvas. And this, these were the kinds of paintings that consumers enjoyed buying um, in the 19th century. And it became a very popular type of painting that emerged at the, in the salon in the 1860s. Now, when thinking of this idea of a woman whose thoughts and psychology are made perfectly available to vision and made perfectly available to the spectator, made perfectly legible so that we can know exactly what she's thinking and what she's doing, I look at paintings by Vuillard and Hammersoy, and what we notice at the turn of the century is suddenly the psychology of women becomes quite complicated. And I think this makes sense because we also know at this time we have Freud who is beginning to theorize psychological topography, meaning the mind is no longer just conscience, but we now have 
an unconscious, a pre-conscious, as he was writing in 1894, and a conscious, and then in 1920, it became the id, ego, superego. But, so what happens now is the human being is understood as a complicated thing that doesn't even have access to its own thoughts. And now we have artists who are depicting interiors, painting genre scenes, but suddenly what we're presented with is something that's quite opaque and ambiguous. And I present um, the beautiful Vuillard painting. It's a small jewel, um, the staircase landing of the Rue de Miro Mesnil. And this is the lobby of the Vuillard building in Paris. And depicted, if you notice that black rectangle in the background, that is Grandmère Michaud. This is uh, Vuillard's grandmother. And you can see we have no idea what she's doing. We know that it's a psychologically tense situation, but her gestures are invisible to us. She's in a lost profile. We have no access to her facial expressions. But she's almost just a formal pretext that is juxtaposed with the yellow rectangle, that chartreuse yellow rectangle that is cast from what I'm presuming is light in the of the apartment that's glowing onto the wall in the foyer. But you can see that the psychologically charged nature of this portrait is not a result of a facial expression that's depicted or any accoutrements that are dispersed across the canvas for us to analyze, but it's produced literally through the formal configurations on the surface. And you'll notice that the two triangles of Grand Mère Michaud's torso and the chartreuse yellow light that are cast on the wall, they're counterpoised with these sweeping curves, this spiral that just lies flat on this canvas. And so you have this decorative surface of very cool muted colors that evokes the psychological tension of Grand Mère Michaud, although we're not quite sure what that tension is. It's not made available to us visually. And then we look at Hammersoy, who is painting, or who begins his series of his paintings of his wife, Ida, in their apartment, in the Strangada in Copenhagen, but she's facing, her back is facing us. And when we look at you know, the painting that I showed you earlier by Stevens, I mean, it would be absurd to think of a genre painting in which your main subject is refusing your gaze. But here she is with her back to us. We have no idea what she's engaging in, what activity, but what we are presented with are the sensuous curves of her silhouette with her black, with her black frock and the um, sensuous nape of her neck with the lock of hair, her hair in a bun, but it's counterpoised with the rigid geometry of the interior. I present this Hammersoy within this context of doubt that we see surfacing around the turn of the century and you know, the inability to understand, the inability to depict, the inability to capture, because Hammersoy depicted Ida probably across 100 camp canvases. And we see her again and again in the same interior with her back to us. And what I find fascinating about this is we know that Hammersoy was a reader of Kierkegaard, and Kierkegaard famously wrote a treatise on marriage in which he described the ethical marriage as one in which the two members of the marriage would be psychologically opaque and unavailable to one another, meaning you wouldn't have complete access to your partner, you wouldn't have complete access to their thoughts, to their feelings, to their emotions, and it was that sense of mystery and that sense of distance that would sustain the relationship and it made it an ethical relationship because you weren't violently possessing one another. And you can see how that sense of opacity that he adapts from Kierkegaard, he exfoliates across an endless series of canvases. Um, luckily, um, if Hammersoy is an artist, um, you um, find appealing. 
you can visit Ottawa. They just recently acquired also another interior. And you can notice that, that the um, Randers Kunstmuseum in, in Denmark, it's almost the same piano, the same piece of porcelain um, on the same wall, and Ida with her back behind us. But when we think of this endless series, it's very similar to the kind of series we see developing in Monet. But we also see an impulse toward the monochrome. And you notice with the Hammersoy paintings, Everything is cast in a silver atmosphere. All colors are muted. There might be some hints of lavender and brown, but generally we have a predominantly tonal scheme of whites, grays, and blacks. Picasso, around the same time, is engaged in his blue period, where, again, all objects are cast in the pall, as it were, of blueness. And so around the turn of the century, as artists and philosophers are coming to terms with the opacity of the world around them as human beings are developing an unconscious. We're also developing the fundamental aspects of abstraction, meaning geometric um, structures, the monochrome, and also broken touches or fracture. One other, well, there are two other themes I explore in the other half of the opening room of the modern gallery, and it's also the collapse of narrative and the collapse of myth. When I was describing those two philosophers who in 1848 described all that was solid melting into air, they also mentioned how everything that was sacred became profane. So here we have the um, Venu Anadiomen, or Aphrodite, emerging from the water. This is Angra, and this is you know, your typical classical mythological painting. And here you have the sensuous serpentine curves on this glabrous nude who's idealized, and she's almost weightless and buoyant, and she seems just to float somewhat coquettishly before your gaze. And what I find fascinating about our collection when I first arrived, we have this lovely painting by Picasso, 1906, and this sculpture by Matisse, 1907, and they're both engaged with Angres and also with the tradition of the ideal nude who happens to be Venus. It just made for the perfect juxtaposition when we were arranging this gallery, and you can see how both Picasso and Matisse in 06 and 07 almost treat the limbs as if they're infinitely elastic to create these sensuous curves that produce this beautiful interplay of positive and negative space. And they also, he are using classicizing poses. We have the clasped hands of Fernando Olivier, Picasso's girlfriend that he, whom he met in 1904, and then Matisse's sitter who prudently covers her sex with her hand. Um, now this Matisse, one might wonder, you know, what, what, what was Matisse doing with Angre? And what was Matisse doing with the tradition of the female nude in France at this time? Notice how unabashed she is about her nudity. She faces forward, her breasts are full display, she prudently covers her sex yet, but she visually almost confronts the viewer. Also notice that Matisse takes Ang's serpentine sensuous curves and he pushes them to the limit at which they become this abstract double helix that pivot around the joints of this figure. But then how does Matisse model her? The modeling is just so aggressive and it creates these disfiguring patches of light and dark across the sculpture. But then look at the foot. The foot, you would think it was just a mound of molten bronze that has been unformed. I mean, if he, instead of allowing her to be this buoyant, weightless, idealized, floating object, instead he emphasizes her ponderability, her flesh, her weight, the voluptuousness. I mean, look at just the sheer size of her thighs. 
This is not the idealized nude of an Angre painting. Um, just as Fernand, Picasso's painting, are we there? Yes. Just as Fernand, you can see, one, we have the impulse toward the monochrome, but with this painting of Fernand, we do have the classicizing pose of clasped hands, but Fernand's actual physiognomy is depicted. She's not generalized the way that Ang's figure is. Also, Ang's figure, she doesn't overpower you, whereas Picasso, the way he crops Fernand, the way Fernand is brought right to the picture plane, although she was quite petite and diminutive in stature, she overpowers you and she confronts you and you're forced to deal with her weight. She's made palpable, she's present. Also, one can think of myth and the universal aspirations of myth in Ang, meaning, you know, Aphrodite is placeless. She's just floating out of an ocean, but we have no idea where this ocean is. It's a myth. Whereas Fernand, her color scheme locates her in the Catalan Mountains. So here, this was painted in Gozal um, in Spain, in the Pyrenees Mountains, just outside of Barcelona, in the Catalan region. And in, Picasso's clearly painting for patrons in, in Spain he wants to sell, and he's situating the classical tradition in a living body in an actual landscape, um, which would have been unheard of in traditional mythological painting. And finally, and this is a favorite of many of you um, and our visitors at the Art Gallery of Ontario, but Augustus John, who presents, um, who presents the Marquesa Cassati, who was quite a scandalous woman at her time. Um, she was known for, um, for all the debauchery and carousal that would occur at her castle in Venice. Her castle eventually became the home of Peggy Guggenheim, and she would parade around town with cougars and snakes, and she was known for her wild menagerie. Um, but she you know, was also a single woman, a woman of her own means who was independently wealthy, and she was actually, you know, she was not controlled by any man or by any institution. So what does Augustus John, who was sleeping with her at the time when he painted this portrait, choose to do but make her into Mona Lisa? So you notice that they are both in three-quarter profile. Their hands are both clasped. You have the elbows that are right on the picture plane. But you notice that the enigmatic smile of Mona Lisa has been lusciously, lusciously rouged. Um, in the case of the Marquesa Cassati, um, you also notice the just outrageous canary-colored curls of her wig. But the eyes, the Mona Lisa's eyes, yes, they engage you, but their mode of engagement is quite gentle. They almost caress you as a viewer, whereas the Marquesa Cassati's gaze, it's a visual arraignment. She's confronting you, and she's almost dominating you. And when one's in that gallery, one can almost feel her eyes following you as if you were in a Byzantine church and the Pantocrator was gazing, you know, I mean, you just can't get rid of her. She's, she's, you know, she's monitoring your every movement. And I, you know, what I enjoy about just, again, what we own in this collection is with the Matisse and with the Picasso and also with the Marquesa Cassati, here you have artists who are acknowledging the conventions that precede them, but they're rejecting them and pushing painting in a very different direction. We move into the second gallery and we enter the teens and the 20s. We enter the moment of World War II, increased industrialization, the mechanization of the social field, the development of the war machine, and also a time during which there was just the mass decimation of human bodies. You think of gassing in World War I. And some artists embraced this increased, increasing mechanized logic of modernity. And one example would be 
Amadeo Modigliani. And this portrait, which you'll notice is right on the sightline as one enters the second gallery, is of uh, Mrs. Hastings, his girlfriend. They met in 1914. They dated for two years. They were known for their torrid love affair. At one point, he threw her out of a window after a party. And she was quite psychologically fragile, according to her friends. And she um, was a writer of British descent from South Africa, but she was part of the scene in Montparnasse, and um, she you know, had a relationship with her painter. Um, the sitter had, has a relationship with the painter Modigliani, and he, you know, even though she was known to be psychologically fragile, you can see he almost tries to ennoble her, and he almost tries to give a certain kind of monumentality and stability to this figure, but how? And you'll notice that Modigliani will take and look at the upper corner of this painting by Picasso from the Cincinnati Art Museum. Do you see those arcs in the upper corner? And you see the line. Modigliani constructs this figure purely out of arcs, and these are arcs that he learned out of cubism, looking at the analytic cubist experiments of Picasso. And so we look at the the, the chair is made out of an arc. You look at the contours of her face, they're made with an arc. Her pencil-thin eyebrows made with an arc. You look at the ridge of the nose made with an arc. Look at her neck made with an arc. The neckline is made with an arc. Her shoulders are made with an arc. The entire composition of this figure, this painting, is built out of the repetition of one form, the arc. And again, you know, the arc comes from the analytic cubist experiments of Picasso and Brock that Modigliani later adapted in order to build his Africanizing figures. And this line in arc, it wasn't just a conceit that maybe Modigliani adapted, but even Kazimir Malevich in Russia, when he was teaching artists, he would show a Picasso and he would show the line in the arc. And you can imagine the line in the arc when put together in a certain way form a sickle. And so you can see how then the line in the arc of Picasso and Brock then became their symbol of revolution. But notice also the color scheme of this Modigliani, the tans, the ochres. It's the same color scheme as the analytic cubist painting. So here you have Modigliani embracing the geometric reduction, the chromatic reduction of analytic cubism. Modigliani was also influenced by another artist who was living in Montparnasse at the time, um, Constantine Brancusi. And you can see that Brancusi also embraced this reduction of forms to their constituent elements, I direct your attention to the arc, the arc that connects the wedge that signifies the eye to the other wedge that signifies the mouth of this, the mouth of this baby. You also notice that the baby is reduced to just a pure ovular recumbent shape that rests on this pedestal. For Brancusi, it was, he rejected what he would call surface appearance, and he wanted to utilize universal forms in order to express universal emotions. So here we have this sculpture, and by the way, you know, we do have a, um, a prestigious provenance with some of the objects in our collection, and some of you might know the artist Marshall Duchamp. He owned this cast at one point. And what Brancusi wanted to accomplish with this ovular form that rests on its pedestal is it's almost an allegory of artistic art creativity. And what do I mean by that? So when you think of the first cry and you look at the highly agitated surface around the philtrum of this baby, the area between the upper lip and the nose, and you can see that he's, he's marked and gouged and scraped and he's agitated the surface so it's quite rough. And you think of the first cry and you think 
of the first opening, the broaching of the skin and the eruption of sound into the world. And almost as when the child begins to first vocalize their emotions, they burst into this material matrix we occupy and begin to modify it. Just as an artist will take materials, modify them and allow their subjectivity to then permeate the world that precedes them. And it's almost as if he utilizes the ovular form and the streamlined, polished surface in order to evoke what artistic creativity actually is. So here we're presented with quite the abstract representation of a child, but then when one begins to see how the universal elements that found this abstraction are utilized, one can see how then he's able to communicate what one would call universal feelings using reductive means. Fernand Leger owned a cement cast of the first cry. And one can see how the cement cast that was in Leger's possession influenced the way he renders the head of this figure. You notice that we have that telltale arc that connects the eye to the nose, to the mouth. But Leger is a purist. And so the purists emerge in 1920 in the wake of World War I. And they see a world that's been decimated by the war machine and they feel that the only way to rescue Europe from itself would be to use the rational geometry of cubism and of machinery and of the machine aesthetic um, to create rational logical forms. And for them, they did believe that the nude was the genre of all genres, meaning it was the most ideal genre. And so here we have Leger building his kneeling nude out of various bent planes that are cobbled together as if she's a machine. And you notice the gradations from light to dark on these curved planes these that, com that constitute this figure it's almost seamless transition from black to white. And what they call this is tubism. And tubism was the creation of the sense of volume through these gradations. You also notice, look at her hair, you would think it was just a rippling sheet of steel. And so the nude would be a machine. And what's lovely about our painting is in 1921, it was exhibited in an important exhibition mounted by Léonce Rosenberg and entitled Might du Cubisme. And you can see in 1921, Cubism had quite a capacious definition. It included the likes of Mondrian, whose works you see on the back wall. Our painting, you can see, is closer to the floor behind the sculpture. I'm not sure if it's identifiable. I wish I could point with the laser pointer, but I cannot. Um, and you can see how the reception of Mondrian impacted Leger when he made this picture in 1921, insofar as he takes the unmodulated fields of color that form the grid in a Mondrian painting, and this becomes the backdrop of our kneeling nude. And it almost creates this rhythmic counterpoint to the rational figure, or the rationalized figure that seems to float in front of us. But what I also find you know, so enjoyable about this painting, but also just about purism in general, it wasn't just that the purists depicted purity. They didn't just depict the rational logic of the machine. They reduced their own hands to machines. And if you look at even how the paint is applied in these unmodulated fields of color in this geometric backdrop, there's no trace of the artist's hand. There's no variation in quantity. There's no variation in value. It's almost as if a machine had painted this painting of a machine. Um, and it, it, this is what I find so lovely about our purest painting by Leger, which is the centerpiece of the gallery dedicated to geometric abstraction in the teens and the 20s. So we return to Picasso, and I just want 
everyone to have a chance to just look at how Picasso would analyze objects, dissect them into various interlocking planes, and how a futurist would look at this and just think, well, this is old hat. And how a futurist would say, well, how, you know, Picasso, as opposed to just painting static objects, how could we use these interlocking, overlapping, interpenetrating planes to evoke actual movement, actual experience, actual time? And Picasso, how could we create in a geometric abstraction that would capture the euphoria of modernity. And this is certainly what Severini does in Mere um, Bataille, or Sea is Battle. And it's a quite a perverse painting when one thinks of our contemporary sensibilities. But in 1915, when Severini made this picture, he and the Italian futurists, a group who formed in 1909, really did believe that World War I would purge Europe of all of its social ills, meaning the decadence of the past, of you know, problematic political regimes, of monarchies that have crumbled, of class inequality, would all be swept into the wastebasket of history by this war that was literally decimating the landscape. And for them, this was almost liberatory. And the futurists believed that the machine and youth and energy and speed would rescue humanity from itself. And here he tries to evoke, I guess, the lyricism of war, as you see in the center the word shock. When you think of shock, you think of a boom, right? A bomb exploding. And then here you have these planes that are literally representative of a world decimated into fragments, but they're made so lyrical and colorful. And you have words, you know, ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta, or ps And it's almost as if he's making war into sound poetry. And we know that the futurists, they believed in synesthesia. They wanted to combine the senses. And here he's making a visual sound poem. And on the verso of this canvas, he has written mote liberté, or words in liberty. And so here he's trying to transform war into pure, or how can I explain, vibrant planes of pure color, but those pure colors also being related to the pure sound of the war machine. Ta-ta-ta-ta-ta, ps It's quite a delightful thing, but I think, you know, for us, we, we might not quite embrace this particular interpretation of war, but for the futurists, this was the future, and this is what would rescue Europe from everything that was wrong from it, with it. Um, so we entered the next room, and in the 20s and in the 30s, there were also artists who were quite suspicious and incredulous of the promises of rationalization, of the promises of the machine. And I open with this... Um, Champette painting by Tissot, just to give you a sense of what this typical, how these paintings are composed and why the artists I'm about to show you how they rejected. So here you'll notice that you have this pyramid of people in the center of the composition, all of their actions, their gazes, their gestures, all pivot around one act, the toast. So the toast is what composes this picture. You'll also notice that they're happily situated, but they're not overwhelmed by the verdant nature that surrounds them. Now, Emile Nolda takes this genre and dismantles it, essentially. And I'll explain why. So in 1911, he painted this picture over four years. It was painted in 1915. But in 1911, some unwanted visitors arrived at his home. And he lived in rural um, Germany um, in an island in the North Sea near the province of Schleswig-Holstein, which is the province that extends in the peninsula that then hits Denmark. 
And there he is in you know, his, his barn studio with his wife in, in rural Germany, and he has all these unwanted visitors. There's a jazz singer from the United States who was in Berlin who performed, who decided, I have to get out of the city, I'm exhausted, I want to relax. And then also with this singer is an unknown woman, no one's been able to, able to identify her, the artist's wife who sits in along the central axis of the painting, and a woman named Frau Sauerland, the wife of his biographer. And here they're having this moment of, I guess, conviviality. They're enjoying a picnic together, and they're trying to relax in the countryside after, I guess, toiling hard in the club in the city. And for Nolda, Nolda loathed the city. He loathed modernity. He loathed everything about the modern age, which is why he retreated to nature. And he presents us with what I consider to be a depiction of the impossibility of stable social relations in the modern era, meaning you look at our singer who is in the foreground in a white shirt and black trousers with <laughs> lilac socks, and I mean, he just seems completely enervated, gazing into a void. He's not engaging with any of the women around him. And then we have the woman behind him who's almost laughing at the scenario. And you have one woman who appears really despondent and she's frowning and then one almost appears to be crying. And here we're supposed to be enjoying ourselves as at a picnic outdoors. But even the whole pretext of this arrangement is, is, is disguised and so far as the still life in the foreground around which this event, this social event is to pivot, it just melds into one another and we have feet melding into cups and then we have these unintelligible yellow forms in the foreground, but this psychological instability and the anxiety that is engendered by modern alienation is just heightened by just the jarring color combinations in the background and you look at the grid form by the fence and you have these vibrant blues juxtaposed with these emerald and hunter greens and then you have these dots of, yellow and orange, and it, it's quite bright, and it's quite, for especially 1915 standards, it's outrageous. And so it's almost as if Nolda is using expressionism and expressionist application of paints and high-key colors to try to create the sense of anxiety and alienation and the impossibility of actual social gathering and togetherness um, in, in this painting, and it, it, we, we know this scenario behind this because it's a well-documented picture, and we're quite lucky to have it. We also have another lovely painting, which I put in this room, by Nolda, and, and it's entitled The Still Life, or Maholika in Blue Background. And the Maholika in Blue Background, what you see here is a baptismal font made out of ceramic, hanging on a wall next to this outrageous iron that has the rearing horse's head. Now, this was painted in 1911. In 1912, Nolda painted, or he wrote a treatise on how international folk art was the source of all pure human expression. And so when we think of this artist and we think of an artist who fled the city, moves to a hamlet in the North Sea, and now he is painting these handcrafted objects by artisans. Um, Maholika, you would find this you know, on the patio of a Catholic family's house in the Alps, maybe in Northern Italy, but it's an object that's used, meaning you touch it with your hand. And you notice the way he paints, and you notice he has these broad, thick, unblended brush strokes. He's almost allowing the felt contours of the Maiolica, the baptismal font, to govern where he lays paints. And so his expressionist brushwork, it's almost as if he's attempting to capture the felt contours of the hand of the artisan who hasn't been tainted by the industrialized logic of the modern factory. 
Now, here's just an example that I found from an auction of a, of a baptismal font that's actually been used. And you can see, I mean, they're, they're meant to be touched and felt. And it's almost as if with his expressionist brushwork, he's trying to recreate that tactile sensation of being one with an object. And when you think of what is being produced in factories at this time, you think of even Art Nouveau spoons and forks, you have these, you know, these contours, these surfaces that are just seamless and you know, they're cast out of metal and they're cold. And here he's using objects that are felt and touched and made by an individual and not on a factory line to govern how he applies paint to the surface. Um, what I also enjoy about this painting is its frame. It's original. And if you ever visit the Noya Gallery in New York, you will see that they have a large collection of works by Nolda, and they're all in their original frames. But the frame, it's a black wood that's actually, it's quite worn wood that he's painted black. And the frame, it's not a frame that disappears. You know, when one looks at a painting, as most frames should do, instead it asserts itself as this object, but it's an object that has these tactile qualities. And it's almost as if he wanted his paintings to be these, man, how can I explain, these handcrafted objects that you almost want to touch. And expressionism is to revive that lost sense of touch, that lost sense of intimacy that one has with an object that's passed down through the home in many generations or that one touches and uses on a daily basis. The Surrealists also shared the suspicion for modernity, but they articulated it in a very different manner. And we have this phenomenal painting by Tanguy, which has also a really prestigious provenance. It was owned by Paul Elwar, the Surrealist poet. At one point, Dali had his hands on it at one point. And then Roland Penrose, who became the historian of Surrealism in Great Britain, also once owned this painting. So how is this a Surrealist painting? This series, which was made in the late 20s, the Surrealist Manifesto was penned in, I think, 24. And so this is at the time during which, you know, Andre Breton is still working with his artists and they're formulating their, their agenda, um, the, the Surrealist agenda. So this is painted at a time when Surrealism was still young and fresh. And Tanguy, what he does is first, he would paint these horizontal striations that you see in this mindscape, in this landscape, and then he would take a trowel and he would, just literally brush across the surface. And what would happen then? He would create these furrows and ridges, but there's no way he can anticipate how these furrows and ridges will form. Meaning when you're using a trowel and you're just scraping, you have no idea what's going to happen. You have no real control. I mean, you have a limited amount of control of what's going to appear. He begins with this. Second, he took strings from the edges of the canvas. And especially if you look near the lower portion of the picture and you notice that there are these high ridges. And what he would do is he would drop these strings and allow the laws of gravity to then determine where they fall and how then they would create a texture on this canvas. So he's installing the logic of chance as opposed to the rigid control that you saw you know, with Modigliani's measured you know, arcs. He's allowing gravity to intervene and take control of the artistic process. But then also, if you look near the upper center, you notice, do you see that squiggle? You know, he's also, when he's painting, he's just allowing the brush to flow freely. And they called this automatic drawing where one relinquished any conscious control and just allowed the brush to skid. And then you allowed forms to emerge from how the paint would congeal when you just had these ostensibly unconscious gestures um, determining where paint would be applied to the surface of the canvas. And from those or from, from those um, applications of paint, he would then develop these spermatozoic forms that you see in the foreground. And it's, 
it's, it's surrealist almost to the letter insofar as when one thinks of surrealism and one takes the word and breaks it down, you have surrealism, right? Meaning it's realism, but then something happened. And when you think of surrealists had, they were the dialecticians, they believed in the dialectic. And so the real, the world we live in is opposed to a dream. And so what if we were to take the dream and allow it to negate the real world and it would create this new term called the surreal. And this is you know, how they thought of their process. They were allowing the unconscious mind and dreams and the world that's been repressed to erupt into our world and create something different. And so here he's almost depicting that eruption of, you can almost imagine this as, as consciousness depicted insofar as you have these unconscious thoughts that are almost congealing into something stable, but it's still quite metamorphic in the foreground, and it just spills into the space before you, and it's almost as if literally the artist's unconscious impulses are creating forms that are spilling into the space in which you stand. Other artists who were associated with surrealism would make paint even more flexible, such as Picasso and Roberto Mata. Mata is famous for thinning paint with turpentine and enabling it to drip, and you can see these drip lines, and you can see how later with the abstract expressionist where and how they learned how to make paint so fluid. But what Mata would do is he would take his palette knife and put pigment on the palette knife and just scrape it, and these um, magenta forms are a result of that act. And then he would allow the thin washes of paint, he would fill in the rest of the canvas and it would drip, and so forms would just emerge. And he called these um, morphologies psychologiques, so psychological morphologies. It's almost as if he is engaging in a similar enterprise as, as Tangi in depicting the brain, but how does one actually depict the unconscious. I mean, it's this unstable entity that only reveals itself metaphorically or metonymically the moment it hits consciousness. And so you can see that in 38 and 39, Mata's attempt to create you know, a psychological morphology resulted in just a series of canvases. And it was just this attempt that sustained his painting practice over time, producing an indefinite series. I would love one day to be able to unify the Art Gallery of Ontario's picture with the Art Institute of Chicago's painting. Um, Picasso essentially did the same in 38, so the year before. So you can see in 38, paint is becoming this really flexible medium that operates outside of the control and will of the artist. And Picasso, he fills his paintbrush with black paint, and you'd see these sweeping calligraphic lines that he creates the back of the chair or the folds of the drapery of Nouchaloir, the wife of the man who owned our Tangi, but Nusha was also an artist in her own right, a photographer, and she also made Kadaviski, and we own one in the collection. So Nusha and Paul Awar and, and Dora Mar and Picasso, they go to Mugen uh, in the south of France to swim and to enjoy vacation, and you can see the date. They're there on the 28th of April, 38. At the time, you know, Paul Awar, you know, they're surrealists and they believe in, you know, the unlimited, let's just say, they do not believe in putting brackets on their desire. And so Awar was encouraging Picasso, you know, please sleep with my wife. And so here's Picasso at this time, you know, he's sleeping with Nusha Awar, but he's allowing the unconscious application of paints, meaning you look at these calligraphic undulating arabesques that determine the back of the chair and also the folds of the drapery, the thin washes of blue paint which, with which he begins to block the figure and from this begins to emerge noosh. But then look at these ribbons of black paint that depict her hair and then also the suggestiveness of the dark triangle in the center. You can see that the desire, the unconscious desire, um, his 
sexual drive for her, you know, manifests itself um, as he unconsciously applies these thin pigments to the canvas. Um, it's quite a lovely surrealist picture by Picasso. We own another, it's currently in Winnipeg. But for now, if you go downstairs, you can enjoy Noosh. Um, and then we enter the last gallery. And the last gallery, I open with this lovely sculpture by Germaine Richier, only because I think it does embody artists' response to the catastrophe that was World War II. Um, you'll notice that I purposefully place this sculpture against a blank wall by itself, and I try to create a sense of desolation with this sculpture by Germaine Richier, which is entitled La Feuille. Now, La Feuille is less than, um, the height is less than that of the average human body, and there she is standing perched atop a granite slab. Her limbs are attenuated, as you can see. You can also see the compressed nature of the face, and you can see also how the surface of the sculpture is so heavily modeled so as to create really jarring contrasts of light and dark. This sculpture, it just, it is instability writ large. Now, Le Feuille, what I find remarkable about the title, if you look at how the sculpture is modeled, along the spine, you'll see that he, the artist, Germaine Richier, has taken an actual leaf and embedded it in the plaster. So now you see the veins of the leaf become, I guess, what would we call these, the ramifying lines of the spinal cord. Or on the hip, another leaf is used, and so, the artist is modeling the plaster with actual objects. If you look at the breast of the, op of the sculpture, you'll notice that she drives a nail through the sculpture to create a nipple. So we have this sculpture with its attenuated limbs, its heavily modeled surface, almost modeled to the point, if you look at the legs, to the point of disintegration. And it's trembling precariously on this granite block. And you as a visitor, as you enter this final gallery, your physicality, your potentiality for power, your physical, how can I explain, difference from this fragile object that trembles before you, you're made aware of your own physicality. And this is the encounter I wanted to stage so that one could get a sense of the anxieties that permeated in France and also the United States in the 1950s in the wake of the war, also the anxiety that was articulated in the treatises of Jean-Paul Sartre and other existentialist philosophers, but also to get a sense of how does one actually depict the human being in the wake of the mass decimation of peoples and the destruction of multiple continents. And the Germaine Richet seemed to embody all of that, and it just seemed to be the perfect transitional piece, especially because we have a woman artist depicting a woman when in the other galleries, all of the nudes you've noticed that I viewed as the centerpieces are made by men. Now, if we follow the gaze of Germaine Richier's Le Feuille, her gaze connects with the woman in the foreground of Diepenkorn's painting, and I purposefully aligned the two so that their gazes would meet one another, so that as a visitor, if you were to follow the eyes of one object, you would meet another. And Diepenkorn is a figurative painter associated with abstract expressionism, but he lived on the West Coast in California, and in many ways, you know, many people have they do not know quite what to do with Diepenkorn because he's figurative, but it's the 1960s, he's an abstract expressionist. Everyone else has almost relinquished a figure, but he's still maintaining it. And what I love about this painting, he 
Diepenkorn never wanted to depict emotions. He wanted to evoke the quality of emotion. And you'll notice that this figure in the foreground, it's, very, it's a quite a bizarre figure. So we have this woman in a white skirt. She's somewhat standoffish in her pose. She gazes outward, but her face is completely distorted. We have no access to a facial expression. We just have a piercing gaze. And she seems almost to be melded into this figure who sits on a bench. And they're it's almost as if they're bo it's a body splitting apart. And it's almost as if Diebenkorn is here depicting the psychological distance between two people when they reach an impasse. And he then extends that psychological distance into the desolation of this hunter green plain that just extends seemingly endlessly before them. But under this hunter green plain, we have this sienna plane that's fighting with it and so we have this agitated plane before them and then the cyan sky and, i mean these putrid colors that create this real jarring color juxtaposition um and color relation i think it creates this sense of women outside but women i mean I, I she seems exasperated but she also seems alone and i feel that he uses color to and he uses color and quantity and to evoke that emotion and not represent it on the visages of the um, women depicted. But so when one's curating, you always have these moments where things just want to be together and you have to, you figure out, okay, well, so I'm in a vault and I'm looking at this deep corn and I pull the next rack and I see this Hoffman and I'm thinking they were just meant to be together. They want to be together. How do I bring them together? And in many ways it makes sense because if one looks at Hans Hoffman, Hoffman was the one who taught all the artists associated with the New York School of Abstract Expressionism color theory. Push and pull was his theory. And what that meant was you can have a bunch of colors flat on the surface of a canvas, but colors of higher value, colors that are brighter, they jut out. Colors that are darker, of lower value, will recede. And so with the use of color, you can create a vibrating surface of planes that protrude and recede. And this is how you can create a dynamic abstract surface. And you can see how, you know, even if Diebenkorn's in Berkeley, California on the West Coast, teaching at the university, he's still in touch with the color theories that are being taught in New York, and he's utilizing them. And I feel that this pair helps unpack that. Um, now, and I'll try to conclude. When one thinks of the disintegration of the um, Le Foy, the object that seems to be almost melting, the precarious, fragile object that is in threat of disappearance, one sees a similar trajectory in British sculpture in the 1930s to 1950s. And here, unfortunately, it's on loan, but Barbara Hepworth's mother and child, Barbara Hepworth was first what they called a direct carver. And a direct carver would take a solid object, a solid material, wood, stone, and they would want to maintain the physical properties of that object and allow that to determine what is represented and how it is carved. And you can see the compactness of the Hopton stone, a stone that is quarried in the East Midlands of Great Britain. And it has properties similar to marble. It's a compact, heavy, ponderable, heavy thing. And so that compactness, you can see she tries to represent through the compact, tight embrace of mother and child. And you see the interlocking shapes that signify this compactness, the heaviness, the solidity of the Hopton stone. In many ways, you can think that she does the same. And you notice even the way she polishes the Hopton stone is just highlight the properties, its heaviness. Um, its luster, which she does also with the redwood. But the difference with this redwood, these two figures, which are perched on a pedestal that she's made, 
out of wood, you notice that she's beginning to bore and carve into it. And in 1933, Hepworth, as opposed to allowing her objects to maintain this solidity and this ponderability and this heaviness, she started to bore through her objects and carve holes through them. And this is an example of um, the two figures where she's penetrated doubly the small form on the right, and then she's carved these two wedges. And so what happens when the core, the center of an object is exfoliated into the space around it, and now you have these curves that relate to one, I mean, when you walk around the sculpture, what's so, what I enjoy about it most is, you notice how we have these two holes in the shorter ovoid form, and then you have these two wedges. If you maybe move your body 90 degrees, it all seems to disappear, and even though maybe over 60% of the object, the short object is hollow, it, it appears solid, and it's the same with the taller object. And so the, the carving of these curves into the center and the opening of the core of the sculptural object into the space around it creates this endless interplay of curves that creates a kind of physical experience with the sculpture that then begins to include the beholder. So the sculpture is no longer this self-contained object that only relates to itself, but then it becomes this form that becomes, that establishes a dynamic relationship with the viewer. Now, Hepworth, in 1932, she met Gabo in Paris, and then Gabo, as a result of political developments in Europe, moved to London. And one can see how, with the strings in the sculpture, how she wants to almost, Hepworth, depict the fields of force in negative space. I mean, and you can think of, I mean, again, sculpture is usually a solid object. It's something that has mass and volume. And here, with strings, Hepworth is attempting to depict the negative if you can wrap your mind around this concept, and this is something she learned from Gabo, who in 1920 with Pevsner um, published a realist manifesto in um, the former Soviet Union in which they wanted to create a sculpture that would be wholly modern, a sculpture that would have no mass, and what I mean by that is it's not a solid piece of rock you know, that has weight and it's solid, but they wanted to create a volume with no mass. So how does one do that? How does one create a three-dimensional thing that has no weight? And so they thought that one would have to abandon the traditional materials of sculpture, abandon plaster, abandon stone, abandon wood, and use acrylic and nylon filament. And what one can see is this, it's quite a paradoxical object. It's quite beautiful, but with the linear filaments, he's able to create this illusion of torquing curves that almost recede into space, but it's actually only five inches, the armature is only five inches thick. But you look at the illusion that these curves that are formed by the monofilaments create, and you imagine this almost infinite torquing into space. But then the linear filaments, they're not solid in the way that one would think of a traditional sculpture, but when they capture light, they materialize space. So when one thinks of the negative space between the strings, and then when these strings capture light, they illuminate the invisible. And here, I mean, it's, you, you can see how now suddenly, if Hepworth allowed the core to unfold into space around it, now we have inside and outside conflated. We have positive and negative conflated. It's almost as if the binaries that have inflected sculptural practice up until the 1920s are just completely exploded in Gabo. And Gabo obviously had a profound impact on British sculpture. And finally, in the last room of the third gallery, we have our international abstract paintings from Europe and America in the 1950s and 60s. And one of the discoveries 
I, um, one, of, or one of the pleasures of this exercise was to become acquainted with the collection. I've only been here for two years, and when I first arrived, I was in the vaults, and I pull a rack, and there was this lovely painting. I've never really heard of the artist, but the painting just had a quality that I could not ignore. And I do some research, and I realize that we have a painting by a member of the Grupo La Paso, a group of artists who emerged in Madrid in the late 1950s who were engaged in broader art informal, a broader abstract mode of painting in Europe, but who are also quite aware of developments of painting in the United States. And the artist whose work I will show you, um, Luis Feito, he's at the end of the group. He's wearing the sweater with the collar. And the other artist we'll discuss is Manolo Miares, who's holding his child. Miares, a member of the El Paso group, he was committed to the manifesto they published in 57, which was to create a mode of abstraction that would acknowledge the condition of Spain at the time of the late 1950s. This is a moment during which you have Franco, the fascist. He's um, reigning over the country. Thought is repressed. It's a politically repressive regime. And these are artists who want to use abstraction to create a space of individuality, spirituality, and liberation, but with the materials of everyday life. Manolo Miares is from the Canary Islands, and in the Canary Islands, when one visits the caves, one sees that bodies are mummified with burlap. And here, to evoke the, let's just say, mummification and ossification of thought that occurs under fascism, he takes this burlap that was used to mummify bodies in the caves of the Canary Island, paints it black and white to evoke the colors of Spanish Baroque painting, but then just twists and wraps it around the stretcher bar of this painting. And so you can see that he's almost thinking, well, how does one paint in, under fascism when any mode of expression is already ossified and repressed and you know, congealed and made stagnant? And, but he was interested in what he called the third dimension of painting. And what he meant by that, you'll notice that you have these blank spaces between the wall and the surface of the canvas. And so even though he's taking this material, this raw material that's used to mummify bodies, he's able to still nonetheless carve an empty space that can then can become a part of the black and white composition that creates a space of expression within the picture. And so you can see how allegorically with abstraction, he's able to create a space of liberation with the materials that literally in his context of the Canary Islands are used to mummify bodies. And then there's this stunning picture by Luis Faito. And what he's done is he's taken pebble and sand and he's literally whipped it into paint and created these impasted passages in the lower quarter of the picture. And in some cases are almost four centimeters off of the canvas. And it's remarkable that it's remained in pristine condition and it hasn't chipped and fallen off and that we do not have significant losses. But when one stands at a distance from this painting, all of that thick impasted material evaporates and it just becomes a mist. And one can think of the Spain in the late 50s. The Marshall Plan had not yet rebuilt the country. It was still a country that was in rubble. There were still wars. I mean, people were living you know, in the fragments of war. And you think of rubble and sand as being the things one would encounter after a building had been bombed. And he's able to take the brute materiality of war, of a Spain yet to recover from the calamity that was the Spanish Civil War, and turn it into an atmospheric mist that just explodes and becomes this buoyant plenum that you know, envelops the spectator. I mean, it's, it's quite beautiful and lyrical, and it just reveals just how different 
abstraction was as a result of the political exigencies of Spain from the abstraction pursued by someone such as Franz Klein. And what's so lovely about the Franz Klein and the Faito, they're both tonal paintings, they're both black and white, and they are the centerpieces of the final gallery of the modern suite. Klein didn't really have the political commitment of Faito, but Klein felt that he wanted to use black and white shards or planes of paint to depict his sensations and his feelings. Many have argued that Klein was trying to rescue himself from the Cubist grid and that when you look at a Klein painting, you're looking at, almost under magnification, the edge of a Cubist plane, the black line, and then the variations of tone that you find in the plane, and it's just exploded and made big. And it's almost the very different, when you think of Faito as you know, allowing material to expand outward, Klein is just looking in, and what he would do is he would draw on phone book paper sheets from phone paper or phone books um, with ink and then he would magnify them with a projector onto a canvas and he would paint and so this is how he gets these broad these broad streaks of black paint that almost look as if they're the edges the frayed edges of you know an ink stroke because he's magnifying and then painting but it's a very deliberate technique and then he will intersperse these darts of cream and white paint so as to activate these planes and if you look closely there are really thick and pasted passages you'll notice that he varies the matteness um, um, and the texture of the black paint so that you get these illusions. And so similar to when we were discussing the push and pull of Hoffman, the canvas begins to vibrate. And what's lovely about the picture we own, he worked on it for two years, there's no figure and no ground. The white and the black, one doesn't sit on the other. Meaning it's, and it creates for a really dynamic experience where, and it sustains visual attention. It's quite a dynamic piece. But when you think of Klein, and his attempt to depict his sensations and his feelings, you can see that similar to Monet, similar to Hammersoy, similar to Mata, it was one of these projects that would have extended indefinitely if he did not die young in the age of, um, die young in 1962. And I close with this because I feel that what unifies the modern suite when we begin with Monet and his picture of London that was once part of a series, and we close with Klein, who's picture Coppola is part of the black and white series he inaugurated in 1950 and ended in 62 is what our two philosophers in 1848 stated about how do we as ethical subjects in the world deal with this modern era of endless change and what they mention is you have to use your sober senses to not just find a way to relate to the world around you, but to relate to one another. And when you think of an artist whose sensations are endlessly changing, are endlessly being formulated and reformulated, and you as a spectator are coming to terms and empathizing with and absorbing those sensations, you can see how you know, modernism in a lot of ways is this ethical attempt to just be in the world and to be together and be with one another. And my hope is that with this modern art installation that I'm creating the conditions in which our visitors can enjoy great art, but also find a way to be together with one another. Thank you.